What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly. Now this week we're going to be taking a dive into comic book pop culture history. We're going to be looking at someone that is integral to the creation, development and, well basically, growth of comic books in the 20th century. Now we could be talking about Harry Donnersfield, we could be talking about Stan Lee, we could be talking about Jack Kirby, any one of these guys, but we're not. Not today. We're going to be talking about someone you've probably never heard of. We're going to be talking about a gentleman called Lev Gleason. Now, Lev Gleason's an interesting individual. He came into comics via advertising. Now, that's actually sound interesting because the fact of the matter is, Lev Gleason was a part of the team that put together those Sunday comic books or those Sunday comic strips into a magazine format to be sold alongside things such as Hoover's. Now that format was then taken some time after and put into new original material and they became comics. This guy has been involved in comics from day dot and that's important. He then went on to produce a whole bunch of other things. Lev Gleason Publishing created a series of comics throughout the 40s and the 50s. But more than that, more than any of that, he stood up for what was right. An interesting individual fought in both world wars, one and two. Went on to go against the American government during the Red Scare and all those other things like the Wortham investigation. This guy's a fascinating dude. Why am I looking at Lev Gleason? Well, a book has been written about him. A book by his, I think what I'd say, his great, his great nephew, um, a guy called Brett Dakin. Now, he's written a book, American Daredevil, Comics, Communism, and the Battles of Lev Gleason. This is a fascinating book, and I'm going to be reviewing it in a bit more detail. But first, I'm going to pass you over to me and Brett Dakin. And we had a really good discussion about the book, uh, about Lev, and uh, about comic book history, and also what's right and wrong in politics today. Okay, I shall hand you over to me. I'm Brett. Thank you for joining us on 20th Century Geek. Uh, I, I truly appreciate you giving us your time. Um, Hello, Scott. Uh, so you, you've... Uh, well, where'd start? Lev Gleason. Um, you know, you've read the book, uh, or most of it at the moment, and uh, um, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, a completely different sort of um, part of comic book history 
um, that I wasn't 100% aware of. Um, so I want to just get straight into it. And ask, let's, we'll start with the basics. But So to you, who is Lev Gleeson? Who, well, basically, who are you? I should start with that, really. You know, a bit over, I'm overexcited by the whole, the whole thing. Who are you? But who's Lev Gleeson to you? And what drove you to write the book? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. It's great speaking with you. I'm sitting here in New York City in the middle of this pandemic and uh, haven't left my apartment for a while. So it's always nice to have someone to speak to, especially across the globe. Um, and I didn't know much about Lev Gleason either, to be honest. it's uh, This man was my great uncle, uh, but he died before I was born. So in fact, I never met him. And uh, growing up, I would hear stories about him, but they were always of a very, uh, they always focused on his role as my mother's uncle. And he, at the time that my mom remembered the best, when she was a teenager in the suburbs of Boston, Uncle Lev was a flashy New Yorker who would come to town every once in a while in his fancy suits and his big aqua Packard, often driven by a chauffeur. And he would... He would swoop into town and he would take all the kids in the neighborhood, my mom and her friends, to the mall and and say, get whatever you want. And he would cover the bill. And that was what they called Uncle Lev's Day. So as you can imagine, I was fascinated with him as a kid because if only I had had an Uncle Lev to do that for me, um, I would have been that much happier. But I so that's basically what I knew. And I I. I heard vague things like like comic books and and communism and McCarthyism and the Catholic Church and sort of these these things would swirl around the stories of, of Uncle Lev and really kind of trying to explain to when we would talk about it as a family why did this man who was so successful um, basically disappear and uh, end up with you know basically nothing you know he mm. didn't die. He wasn't destitute or anything like that, but he, you know, he, he retired into obscurity and uh, and really wasn't heard from for the, the last 10 years of his life. And so that got me really interested in, in learning what happened to this man. And, and I kind of got into it when I was graduating from law school uh, because I was kind of looking for an excuse not to study for my exam. <laughs> Um, and this was a good enough, a good enough excuse as any. So that's that's basically how I got into it. Is yeah, it's, uh, I like the idea. Of sort of like uh, anything to, other than do revision. So I think we've all been yeah. there. I've, I've definitely sort of found other distractions. But this distraction is fascinating. I mean, usually it was me playing like you know computer games or some other <laughs> finding sort of really a name. But this is fascinating. Um, but the th- I mean, you know, uh, Lev, uh, Uncle Lev. Um, you know, you say sort of like you mentioned like comics and the sort of things. I mean, really, I mean to get to down to brass tacks is like without Lev Gleason to some extent, there may not have actually been comics. Yeah, I mean, he was right there, as it turns out, at the birth of the medium. Really, I mean, he uh, he was from Boston. Um, he fought in France in World War One, and when he came back. He was sort of listless in Boston. He was tired of the stuffiness of his parents and that world. And in the early 30s, he moved to New York City. And he got there at a time that was really extraordinary 
politically, as we can talk about, but also creatively because it was the time when the comic book was born. And it was essentially born as a vehicle for advertising. Mm. Um, and Lev got his start as an advertising man uh, in magazines. And he, and he came up with the idea of, okay, how can we take cartoons, which obviously weren't new, and newspapers publish cartoons often on Sundays, and, but how can we take these cartoons and repackage them in a standalone format, uh, first give it away for free, you know, again, funded by advertising companies and for products often tailored, often targeted at children, um, and then eventually charge for it. So started to charge, you know, 10 cents an issue and, and came up with this sort of 64 page booklet format, um, and that, that, you know, sort of took off, uh, in the, in the mid to late thirties. And he started off working with four and then with other folks. And then in the early forties, he started his own company, Lev Gleason, publications, which was unique among comics publishers in the sense that he put his name right on the company. Yeah. His name was on every issue of every comic book he ever published. Um, and he wasn't going to hide from the content, which uh, became quite controversial um, because he got into some very sort of racy comic books and there was a backlash. But at the start, it was superheroes and you know the, the main uh superhero of the early years for uncle lev was daredevil yes the original daredevil um <laughs> that's right we have to put that caveat yeah and um and that's it i mean you know as an early adventure i mean you know you mentioned about some of the things he'd done i mean you know he rubbed shoulders with others that are known for these things i mean i was reading the book and you mentioned like harry donenfield um yeah and uh who you know, it was entangled really in the, in the creation of Superman as well in DC comics and stuff. And, uh, and you know, it's interesting how people seem to get into these things. Cause obviously you say, you know, uh, Lev Gleason obviously got involved through advertising and that sort of thing. And Do- Harry Donenfield very much used it as a, an excuse to smuggle other things around the country. Um, That's right. Uh, but getting to Daredevil, like I say, he's, he's a first, um, key sort of character adventure, but also, uh, there's a question I've got which we'll sort of work up to, but really, sort of, it seems like he used the characters, in particular Daredevil, then to, to become this platform. And you mentioned about the controversy, and um, the first thing I suppose that you know Lev Gleason Publishing sort of came up with is is the what I've, I've now researched it and I've read some of it is that um, Daredevil battles Hitler. That's right. Um, yeah. And this is a real sort of. Um, I mean, as you put it in the book, like a call to action. So, you know, Lev, Lev was taking a, a stand in the early 40s with regards to fascism in, in Europe, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, he. It's, it's so interesting because that comic book, that issue of Daredevil, July 1941, mm. Daredevil battles Hitler. You, got, you have Hitler right on the cover. Not a, not a cartoon version, but they, they took a photograph of Hitler and they doctored it a bit. But it couldn't be clearer that this was a real world enemy. And he was essentially saying, along with his team, the folks who actually, the artists and the writers who actually created it, but he was saying to 
Americans, look, we can't stay out of this any longer. And, you know, Americans like to think that that um, we were always uh, in for the fight. But the fact is that, as we all know now, the U.S. stayed out of World War One as long as it possibly could. And FDR was extremely reluctant to get involved and even reluctant to criticize uh, mm. openly um, the anti-Semitism of the early years of the fascist regime in Germany and other regimes in Europe. We always remain neutral in the Spanish conflict. Um, and that was really where Uncle Lev got his start in this activism was the Spanish Civil War. He didn't fight in the Spanish Civil War, but he was part of the effort in the United States to support the anti-fascist, anti-Franco forces in Spain from New York City. And they were, they raised a ton of money. Um, it was actually a cause that was popular among a lot of celebrities of the time, including Pablo Picasso. Um, but Uncle Lev was on the board of this organization uh, that was dedicated to helping refugees, Republican refugees from Spain who were escaping the Franco regime. And he, you know, became involved in that period when he was uh, working on comic books and getting to know those folks like, like Arthur Bernhard and Harry Donenfeld. Those guys were, they were not involved in politics <laughs> the way he was. And, and they came from a completely different background. I mean, you have this guy, Lev, who, who grew up in New England. He went to Harvard. He, he studied at the Sorbonne after fighting with the army in France. He, you know, he had gone to a fancy prep school before going to college. So he was from a completely different background, and his interests were much broader than, uh, than the comic books. And so as you say, he used them to a certain extent as a vehicle to promote his views about the world and the proper role of government and the proper mm. role of the U.S. government um, at the time. Yeah, you know, one thing to mention is, like, you know, you mentioned obviously he was involved in activism and, and everything from New York, but he wasn't like a, an armchair um, revolution for that. Like, the, you know, he, he put his money where his mouth is because, as you say, not only did he fight in World War One, he re-enlisted at the age of 43 um, to go and fight again in, in World War Two, didn't he? So That's right. Yeah, he was very, you know, he, he was a committed anti-fascist mm. and for for what that meant to him was he, a strong belief in representative democracy and for him the united states with all its flaws which he was constantly pointing out um was uh the best hope for beating fascism at the time so he was eager for the u.s to get involved and he was eager uh, to get involved himself. So yes, he voluntarily re-enlisted and he served for a couple of years. You know, he was much older by then. Mm. Um, so he was not, he, he wasn't fighting. He was more in a, in a kind of administrative capacity, bringing his um, talents as a communicator to bear. Uh, but he, yeah, he was really dedicated to the fight and, the extraordinary thing is that after the war, uh, as we all know now, the, there uh, was an obsession in the United States.
United States with communism as the Cold mm. War really ramped up. And, uh, and a good part of the book is about how Lev himself uh, got uh, sort of ensnared by that anti-communist uh, fever. And this is, this is before Joe McCarthy and the most um, outrageous abuses of the Red Scare. Yes. This is a, an earlier period, but I just found it so interesting because he, being anti-fascist, became un-American after the war. Uh, you know, it was it was a very interesting shift. Mm. Um, and the so the group that I was talking about that was dedicated to helping Republican refugees from the Spanish Civil War that was branded a communist front organization and Uncle Lev was hauled before uh, the U.S. Congress and questioned about that group and ultimately convicted of contempt of Congress for failing to name the names of its supporters and the people who were being helped. So it's just, you know, looking back on it now, it's just so bizarre to me how uh, these terms like fascism, communism, democracy are so easily manipulated. And what seems clear in one historical moment um, is completely turned on its head in another uh, and you can, you know, end up being branded the enemy of your own country for which you fought. Yeah, well, you, you say that, you know, one moment, but you know, like you say, it's not even a decade later. Like it was literally within a couple of years, wasn't it? Really? So it's like you say it was turning on a dime. That thing of like what we yeah. won. It was, you know, we beat fascism. Right now, we've got to beat the other extreme. Um, <laughs> It's, that's right. Is that sort of looking, just looking for anything they felt was a threat to the, you know, to capitalism? Um, it's interesting you say about this thing, you know, about his communication stuff. I mean, one of the things that comes through the the book and, and and reading about him is, it's clear is he loved publishing. He loved that thing, you know, the, these, you know, um, the ideas and working with these people to create the characters like Daredevil and and the others, um, as well as his magazines. But it, it's clear also that this was creating a platform for him to um you know deliver his message to an audience really and i don't know you know would you, was it intentional did it you know i mean you say he fell into this by accident through advertising but was there a point where he was like okay this is more about me getting out my you know the message and sort of that liberal and left-leaning um you know ideal uh you know or was it you know always just about yeah it's a business and i get to make cool characters yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And of course, one of the great frustrations of writing a book like this is I could never actually ask him questions <laughs> like that. <laughs> so I have to just kind of uh, try to piece it together. But I think that the answer is probably that he had a very clear idea that he wanted to use publishing not only to make money and have a comfortable life, um, but also to get uh, very clear political messages out. Mm. And, I, you know, it's the comic books, we talked about Daredevil Battles Hitler, which is kind of an insight into his anti-fascist uh, uh, beliefs. But, you know, other comic books as well are interesting. Like even his crime comics, mm. you know, he, he was uh, the, basically, his left Gleason Publications was the publisher of the first crime comic, crime does not pay, which became massively successful uh, 
after the war, uh, he sort of recognized that superheroes were going to remain popular, but after the end of World War II, he predicted folks would, you know, GIs would come back from, from fighting abroad, and they would be looking for a different kind of content. And as we moved into a period of, of peace, and we no longer had that uh, enemy to fight against, he figured people would be looking for different kinds of stories. And so that's how they came up with Crime Does Not Pay, mm-hmm. which was basically true crime. You know, they, they took, his team took true stories of real-life criminals and told those stories through the pages of comic books. And what was different about that was, of course, comic books had focused on crime for a long time, like Dick Tracy mm-hmm. was all about solving crimes. But it, the focus had been on the on the detective and on the police and on the authorities um, and their efforts to uh, solve crimes. Whereas Crime Does Not Pay started with the stories of the criminals themselves and how they got, you know, what, where did their lives begin? How did they get into this uh, line of work? And of course, the title was Crime Does Not Pay. So at the end of the day, uh, the, the stories you would neatly wrap up as, you know, the criminal being brought to justice. Mm. But it was a different, a slightly different take. And I think that that was reflective of his politics and his editorial team's politics as well, because they wanted to emphasize that, um, you know, crime is the result uh, in many ways, not just of pure evil and inherent evil, but also socioeconomic factors how someone is raised, poverty, lack of education. I mean, the way I'm talking about it now is sounds very <laughs> academic, but you know, when you look at these comic books, obviously they, they didn't say any of that, but the way that they're presented, these stories, you know, you can kind of see, oh, you know, that's that's what they're trying to do here. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's interesting, if you do go back to this, I, I went back and I've done some, again, some research about crime doesn't pay, and... and um, one of the interesting things is again, it's that thing of the the lessons that a market learns that takes forward. Is they say it's clear that there's a message there that well, it's like you say it's there in the title. Um, yeah. And and soon after though, it starts to expand in the market, and you do get crime comics focusing on criminals, but they become more and more lurid, and they sort of become a bit more, you know, I want to say well maybe gratuitous. It then leads into the horror comics, you know, sort of mm-hmm. e- EC, and and there's others. And it's that thing of sort of it starts it starts as one thing and becomes another. Um, yes, that's right. And and there were I just found it hilarious how many how many knockoffs there yeah. were of crime does not pay. I mean, it was just it was just this incredible kind of flourishing of of crime comics because, as you say, the market recognized, oh wow, you know, people like this stuff, and and then it it really it, it went a little too far, and it and it ended in a backlash against those comic books from uh, from parents, from mm-hmm. politicians, from the Catholic Church, from you know various institutions which viewed comic books as actually dangerous yeah. and causing crime. And that was a, a real problem for Uncle Lev that he dedicated a lot of time and energy to fighting against. Yeah, so he, he definitely, I mean, he went against the Wortham, um, you know, obviously there was the book, the, the Destruction of the Innocent, and then he, there was the whole Congress thing there as well about 
uh, comic creators having to sort of cite, um, you know, sources and then obviously the comic book codes that was the result. But so I understand that Lev was involved in that as well, that that sort of, you know, standing up to say, well, no, they can be used for other means. It's not a case of they're just corrupting children and they're all going to become criminals. <laughs> yeah, no, he was, he was very involved. He, you know, in the, before Wortham came along, there was an earlier kind of anti-comics move in the States, and he got together with fellow comics publishers, and they formed an association of comic book publishers, and he became the president. Mm. Uh, and so that, because he was the president, he was then put in a position of defending the industry on radio, and then later, on when television came along, on TV and in newspapers, and he he would uh, debate folks like uh, Fred Wortham, Dr. Wortham, who wrote The Seduction of the Innocent. He would debate them publicly on the radio, uh, panel discussions, and he would, he would make arguments in defense of the industry, which were along the lines of, well, first of all, you know, who are you to tell people what they should and should not read? So he was very, he was very much... Uh, a proponent of freedom of expression, freedom to read what you want, and who, you know, even though he himself came from a very sort of privileged and elite background uh, educationally and in terms of his family, he basically was saying, look, don't be elitist. If people want to read comic books, they should be they should be allowed to, even children. Um, and that, you know, that in and of itself was fairly controversial among some who thought, oh no, we should we should tell children what they can and cannot read. And um, and it ran into, uh, I think, a lot of uh, concerns about about teenagers in general. You know, what the whole notion of a teenager um, was new, yeah, beginning yeah. in early in the fifties. And and you know, the comic book controversy ran headlong into that. And and Uncle Lev, obviously he was trying to sell a product to these teenagers, um, but he also was fighting for for their right to access contents that they were interested in. Um, and so he he really was was very unapologetic about comic books. In fact, he he argued that they were good for kids, that they you know help get kids into reading, that they um, that the messages of crime does not pay, as you were saying before, were actually positive messages about how crime doesn't pay you've got to you know work hard and and follow the rules so he he kind of um you know he he tried out various arguments in, over the years um and they they it's so interesting when you look back on it because in a sense they did work because the government never stepped in to censor comic books in the United States. And there was a danger that it would. Uh, and as you say, there was there were congressional hearings, there were major hearings in New York State as well, because mm. you know, most of these publishers were coming out of New York City, uh, like Uncle Lev, and the New York State legislature conducted a huge investigation, public hearings, then it happened a couple of years later in D.C., in Washington, D.C., at the federal level. But ultimately, the government decided, both at the state and the federal level, for constitutional reasons, for freedom of expression reasons, the government can't step in 
and censor comic books. So that was what led to the code, yeah. the comic code, which was a self-censorship mechanism, yeah. which ultimately was extremely effective. Uh, you know, the government didn't need to step in because the industry censored itself, essentially. Yes. Yeah, no, that's a whole different part of history. But, I mean, yeah. uh, it's uh, it's fascinating. I mean, you know, just to, to find a couple of notes, really, is, you know, you, it's, it's clear, you know, um, Lev Gleason is... Um, uh, you know, a, a major part of comic book history, and sort of like you say, fell into obscurity, and you know, he sh- he closed the doors on uh, on Lev Gleason Publishing, and, and it sounds like you know it was, um, for a number of reasons really, um, uh, which is a shame because I think you know I'm glad this book's you know I'm I'm happy to sort of promote it because I think it's a really interesting and cr- crucial part of comic history and American history, but more importantly, the world's in a bit of a mess right now. And I, I feel that there's something to be taken from this book about standing up for what you you feel is right or what is right to be fair. Um, so what do you you know do you think that you know that people could learn something from Lev today, sort of you know fifty years later from uh, is it 1971 that he he passed was it? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And it's 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 amazing that you say that because he just a year before he died, he as you say he had retired. Uh, into obscurity, he had left comic books way behind. I mean, he didn't even, he, he shut down his company in 1956, and he didn't even try to hold on to any of the rights to any of these characters, any of these stories. He just gave it all up, and he just he just left it behind. But there, I found a note that he published a year before he passed away, which was actually in the anniversary uh, Harvard class of 1920 alumni book where each you know each member of the class would kind of report you know this is basically what I did with my life and I you know and most people wrote in and they said well you know I made a lot of money and you know now I play golf and I'm you know so happy that uh, you know my children are also successful lawyers too or something like that <laughs> And, you know, whereas Uncle Lev wrote in and he, he gave a brief summary of, the, of his, the, the titles he had published, including some of the more controversial ones. And then at the end, he said, you know, I have great hope for the future because I'm looking at these young people protesting the war in Vietnam, and I think they're absolutely right. And so I'm looking forward to a future in which we have less war and black people come into full equality. And I mean, that is what he wrote. And so it, when you say, well, are, are there any, is there any resonance for what's going on today? Well, I think absolutely our political situation is, and Americans really are becoming more comfortable calling uh, the Trump administration a fascist government. Mm. Um, and it's especially uh, in the wake of the Black Lives Matters uh, protests, which has resulted in this incredible federal law enforcement response where now we, in cities like Portland, you have unmarked vehicles carrying uh, a federal, <laughs> a, a federal uh, uh, troops, really. They're not military troops, but they're essentially troops who are not wearing any identification and they are swooping in, picking people off the street and into unmarked vehicles. Now, that has really brought us to a whole new level. But 
it is essentially what the same thing that Uncle Lev was. America is not a lot of love, for example, the treatment of black Americans, but we have to fight really hard to protect what we've got. Representative democracy that uh, in which we can express our voices freely, and uh, and I think that if he were alive today, he would be right out there uh, as I was actually um, over over the past few months protesting in favor of Black Lives Matter on the streets of of New York. Excellent, I agree. Yeah, it's been. It's been an interesting time, as it, was it the Chinese proverb says, "May you live in interesting times." Um, it's definitely been <laughs> yeah. interesting times, um, and so yeah, you know, just reading about this, this this person who sort of was taking this stand 50, 60, 70 years ago, you know, more ago, um, it, you know, is inspirational to say, look, this isn't, it's not going to change overnight, you know, and, and it's an ongoing battle, and it's it's our responsibility to to stand up to these things and to be counted and to make a difference. So. Um, you know, I think the book is is both a fascinating glimpse at comic book history, but also of of just cultural history as well. Um, well, thank you for thanks for reading it and uh, and having me on to talk about it. I really appreciate it. No, it's been fascinating, and I appreciate you giving the time. And uh, you know, it's available from Chapter House. Um, you know, so if you want to sort of find it, Google it, check it out. Uh, I'll put the details of that in the notes for the podcast. Um and it's, it's available in August, isn't it? So I mean, this will be going out in August. So it's available. That's right. Uh, now, so it's out there now. So it'll be available now. So go out and check it out. Um, but Brett, thank you very much. One final thing: you said about the licensing for the characters. Is there any possibility of any of, of the Gle- Lev Gleason publishing characters ever making their way back to uh, you know, the the four color pages? There, there is in fact. It's. It's the interesting story about how this book was published, which was that I was actually contacted by my publisher, Chapter House. Uh, They're a Canadian publisher based in Toronto, and they actually publish comic books. This is really the first time that they're publishing uh, a book, Um, and they are planning to publish uh, new stories uh, in in a contemporary setting using some of the characters that appeared in Lev Gleason publications like Captain Battle, for example, is one of his other uh, heroes. So yes, you know, these, these characters are in the public domain, so they're, they are free to be used and uh, repurposed uh, in new stories. And Chapter House is, is one of the uh, publishing houses that has plans to do that. And they really are, believe strongly in in reviving uh, these characters and 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 sort of reviving Lev Gleason publications and its political values as well. And you'll see Chapter House Comics, they tend to have pretty progressive values as well. So I didn't know anything about that, but they when they learned that I was writing a book about Lev Gleason, they they looked me up and we got to talking and, and it seemed to make sense uh, that they would publish his story excellent yeah and again go to you know if you want to find chapter house their website it's on google but also uh, i did check and it's sort of a, a bit of a loaded question because i fully knew that was the case um because <laughs> all, those comics are also on comicsology that's comicsology comicsology.com 
and comicsology.co.uk. So you can put in there chapter houses in there as a publisher, but you can find Captain Battle. Uh, they also produce Captain Canuck, who is like the basically Canadian version of Captain America. Um, and it's very cool. Uh, so go check that out. Um, yeah, I, I will say that the book is, my book is also available on Waterstones mm-hmm. and Foils and a bunch of other UK booksellers. So um, I did verify that before getting on. You can you can find it that way too. It might be easier uh, to, to get your hands on a copy that way. Excellent. I will, I will confirm that and I shall get, put, again, put the links and notes in the, the podcast uh, notes. Brett, it's been a joy. Thank you very much. Uh, for coming on, and uh, thank you, Scott. And uh, you know, hopefully, we'll see more of uh, of Lev Gleason publications in the future. That would be great. I really appreciate it. Great chatting with you. You too. Thank you. Bye bye. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Brett. It's a fascinating topic, and Lev Gleason seems like a fascinating guy. I really enjoyed talking to Brett, and I think the fact that this is more than just a usual comic book or sort of review kind of discussion is was, was much more interesting for me. And I think that's why the book's actually really important um, in itself. Uh, American Daredevil Comics, Communism, and the Battles of Lev, Lev Gleason. Uh, from Chapter House and notes and links to where you can purchase the book will be available in the notes below for this podcast but to review the book in sort of short terms really is to say yes this does give um, some history to comic book development there is a whole there's uh, several pages dedicated to the creation uh, of uh, the comic book itself how he got into because obviously he was coming from uh, advertising <clears throat> and he was involved in that uh, it also covers things like how as he became a publisher he was involved with other people such as Harry Donenfield uh, who became uh, incredibly important for DC Comics um, he's a person seriously worth looking into um, I suggest looking at books there's a, a book uh, called uh, Superman Birth of a Hero which is all about the, the like a biography of Superman uh, Men of Tomorrow uh, by, uh, I forget the guy's name now, uh, but both of those really cover the birth of DC Comics and Superman and Batman, everything, and he's heavily involved in that, uh, and he was a real character, but that's besides the point. Lev Gleason, you know, he, he entwines through several of these sorts of things, and whilst he has his own publishing house and does focus a little bit on comics, and we get sort of Captain Battle and Daredevil and some comedy comics. Granted, he's not a writer, he's not a creator per se, he was the publisher. But more importantly, he acted almost as a buffer and as a representative for the comics industry. Um, you know, Yes, we don't have the original Daredevil, as you can call him, or Captain Battle really in sort of the big two, or you know, selling tens of thousands of comics today, but they are still important because they represent... Um, a period in history and the 
ethos and morality of Lev Gleason. Um, and that's what this book is really about. It does. It goes into the detail of everything else that he's done. It talks about uh, how he tried to create a magazine to sort of rival Time and Life magazine, uh, but more of a left-leaning sort of liberal stance. How he was involved in groups sort of pre-war uh, promoting, you know, the fact that uh, America should be involved in the Second World War um, and, you know, anti-fascist groups. I didn't realise how there were, or how many, I should say, um, fascist-supporting groups there were in America in the sort of late 30s and early 40s. Not a shock today, granted, you know, there's plenty of them, um, including the president, let's not lie. But it's fascinating that this one person was a part of that group and then moved on and basically utilised this medium that, that he become so sort of in, entrenched with and developed to get his message across. Now, this isn't a book about the history of comics, I, I granted. And, you know, if that's what you're looking for, I suggest you look elsewhere. If you want to understand how comics... Uh, can carry a message and how important they can be as part of a delivering that message to a wider audience then this is a good book more than that it also touches on other key points of a 20th century history that do um, have an impact on comics and pop culture you know it does it talks about the uh, Dr. Frederick Wortham and uh, how that led to the comic books code and how sort of uh, Gleason sort of stood in uh, and stood up to them uh, in the Senate and then obviously the you know the committee of un-American activities, or it's called the sort of this idea that he was considered to have been a communist and may have had his own alter ego, in which he published communist manifestos and things. A fascinating person. Uh, finally, you know he shuttered the doors. I mean, I'm not going to spoil the end, but he shuttered the doors of Lev Gleason Publishing. Basically, had been worn down, but that doesn't mean he ever stopped. Uh, and I think it's it's a shame that Lev is not recognised and at least remembered, you know, yeah, he's not in comic book terms and, and pop culture terms, he's not up there with um, Stan Lee or, you know, some of these, or even sort of, you know, the image guys of sort of um, uh, Jim Lee or, or uh, Todd McFarlane fine, but he stands for something and in more important than that, he stood for what was right and he put his neck on the line to sort of defend that and I think that's that's brave and important um, there are several things to consider though that you know I will shout out as on the other side I mean um, we talk in the interview and in the book it sort of leans on this idea of, of the original daredevil in this daredevil battles Hitler um, well it should be noted obviously that that whilst that came out in July uh, 1941 uh, in March 1941, Captain America number one came out with a very similar concept. So he wasn't the first one there, and that's not really mentioned in the book. And you know, I'll let that slide, but it's worth it is worth noting. And there are a couple of other things like that in the book, but what I would say is it's fantastically written, it's personable, it's incredibly well researched, and this guy was, is a fascinating character. Um, I highly recommend the book. It is available. Uh, in all good bookstores uh, and, and Amazon as a is everything. Uh, I highly recommend checking it out um, and just learning about this guy and if anything taking a lesson from him just to say like what's about standing up for what is right um, and and just just that positivity of that, that we should be doing these kinds of things and that people are created equal, you know and 
I, I will grant you that you know even though he was an incredibly left-leaning liberal some of the terminology and some of the language in the book is of its time um just because that's how some things were termed but it's still that measure of a pro pro uh, progression and progressive um mentality i think that's incredibly good so i'm going to go ahead and say i really enjoyed this book it's i learned a lot from this um and it's actually sort of st it stuck with me in many ways um and having had and been you know given this platform of a podcast whoever listens to this uh, and other things that i do it makes me realize that you know not only do i have a, a voice and a platform i almost have an obligation to entertain fine but also sort of make sure that we are on the right side of history and that we are sort of i am standing up for what i believe in and, and there will be more of that probably going forward so um, I hope you so. Just want to round up. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I recommend this book, um, and I'm going to be passing my copy on to several other people just for them to check out. So, thank you very much for listening. As always, um, I hope you enjoyed the show. There will be more coming. Um, but if you really enjoyed the show and you want to sort of listen to more about what we can do and the other things we do, and we have a Patreon. 20th Century Geek is making a podcast on Patreon. Every month I put out a podcast called 30 Minute Thoughts. And it's just me espousing on whatever has been chosen. So every month you get to choose. There are three tiers. The bottom tier. It just gets to cut that podcast every month. They will get a copy uh, or they will get 30 Minute Thoughts. Um, if you are in the next level uh, of the camp, then you get to choose uh, what that 30 minute thoughts is about. I will put out a poll and you get to vote on it uh, and you get to choose. If you're in the vote, uh, the category above that, not only do you get the podcast, not only get to you do you get to choose what that podcast is about, but you also get to vote four times a year on a show that will be appearing on the main feed. And the choice has been made. We've already done it. I have a Patreon at that level. I put out a, a poll for them. They made a choice and I will be doing, on the next episode, I will be talking about American comedian from the late 80s, early 90s, Bill Hicks. Uh, a fascinating guy, another fascinating guy from history. Again, sort of little left-leaning, so you can sort of see where I'm going with life. Um, and I can't wait to talk about him. So please check out the Patreon. I really appreciate my supporters. I think they're fantastic, and I, I, I you know, it really makes all this worthwhile. Um, so thank you to them. If you don't want to give a monetary support, I and I completely understand why, then please go on your podcast catcher and leave a review, four, five star, whatever it want to be. Just leave a review and let us know what you think of the show. It's greatly appreciated. Um, other than that, just spread the message. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I have an email. We have a website, 20thcenturygeek.com. There's all kinds of bits and pieces on there. Check them out. Give us your support. Get in contact in any way you, you want to. I love talking with listeners. Okay. Hope you're having a great summer. Hope you're staying safe. And I will talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.